I'll set this down for later. I bought my, brought my Pennsylvania monster buck with me. So, as Wade said, 1994 monster buck. That's how they looked right there, guys. Okay? <laughs> thank you for allowing me to be here this morning. And I want to thank you for praying. And I'm probably going to shed some tears. I'm going to warn you right now because you guys all mean a lot to me. And I love you all. And I wish I could say to the kids in class what I'd like to tell them about Jesus and how much he loves them. Because deep in my heart, that's what I really want to do. I want to talk to you about pride this morning. This is a, something that I've struggled with for a long time. And it's a sin that I struggle with. I also, as I speak today, hope that you can gather the sovereignty of God and how much he loves us and how much he wants to get into the nooks and cranny of our lives and deal with areas of our life, and he cares about what we do. Every little thing that we do, he cares about. And to do some of this, I've got to tell you some stories. And some of you know that I love baseball. Actually, I love most sports. I've played more baseball and coached more baseball. It doesn't mean that I love it more, but I do enjoy it. I do like hunting a lot more, so when Pastor Matt asked me to come speak today and go to the banquet last night, I was like, this is awesome. So, And believe it or not, um, I was actually thinking about this sermon a long time ago, and a year or two ago, before all this has happened with my son, and... I'm thinking, you know what, this would be cool to share associated with a wild game banquet. And then here Pastor Matt asked me to speak, and I knew exactly what I needed to talk about. I started playing baseball very early. My sister's in the back, and she will tell you that first word I ever said was ball. So I've loved sports, and I started playing t-ball probably age five. I don't even remember some of the details, but started playing baseball pretty early, and don't remember that I was real good at it the first year, second year. You know, you always get a little bit better the second year. So I remember having fun in t-ball, moving on to what we called farm league in Clearfield. I think it's coach pitch now. The kids would know it as coach pitch. But um, when we played farm league, it was if you didn't make it for Little League Baseball, the kids got put into farm league. So we had 11- and 12-year-olds pitching at us. And here I am, a little 8-year-old, thinking, now this is pretty intimidating. And I don't remember having a hit the whole year until my last at-bat. And I don't even I remember if I could call it a hit. It might have went between the second baseman's legs, went through the right fielder's legs, but I know I ran as hard as I could to get around the bases, what I called a home run. But anyway, I don't remember being very good at baseball when I was young. And even I went into nine-year-old, his little league, and didn't do very well there. I can remember being in left field and having a ball. Nice high fly, fly ball. It probably was 6,000 feet in the air. But I remember watching that ball, and it landed behind me. And I remember bending over like this on the field, and I remember crying in left field as I missed that ball. But that also motivated me, and I remember that I religiously made my sisters throw me fly balls in the outfield and my dad. So I just made sure that they had a sore arm and needed rotator cuff surgery as well. So... Um, but I got better, and through Little League, I had some great years, 
And then to senior league again, the 13-year-old year, you don't do very well going to the big field. And I remember being intimidated by the bigger kids, and they were very intimidating. But 14 and 15, things started to come together, and on up through high school, the Lord started to bless what I was doing. And as I remember back through all that, I remember just playing the game. I don't remember being arrogant about it. I don't remember, I mean, I got upset if I did, I did bad, but I don't remember being prideful when I played the game and I just played it and I loved it. And I love other sports. I probably like football as, as much as I like baseball. And it wasn't until a knee injury that I got in high school that I quit playing football. But, you know, when baseball was over, I was in the backyard playing tackle football and touch football with my friends. And it was a year-round thing for me. Well, time, or the time came for deciding what to do for college. And I wanted to go play baseball in college. And I knew that's why I wanted to give up football because I had already torn my ACL, my, one of my major ligaments in my knee. And I did not want to ruin that opportunity. So I'm like, all right, football's over. I'm going to go play baseball. I would like to try to go out for college baseball. So I walked on at Geneva College, and I loved it. However, again, first year there, probably one of my worst years of baseball. And I've made mistakes that I normally don't make. You know, base running errors, and I'm like, I would, I would come back to the dugout. I'm like, why did I do that? I, I've never done that before. You know, here I am making mistakes. But one thing that I've been blessed with all of my life is having great coaches, great little league coaches, senior league coaches, high school, fabulous coach with Coach Lansbury. When I got to college, it didn't stop. Um, the coach that I had, um, strong believer, and he was a Division I coach, and he was at Geneva, and I learned a lot from him. I soaked it in. He was teaching us little details of the game that I never knew before, and I just soaked it in like a sponge. You know, I wasn't even a pitcher in college, but anything he would say, I'm just sitting there soaking it in because I I wanted that knowledge. But as I was soaking that in, and like a sponge soaks in water and swells, I didn't realize that there was some pride that was starting to grow inside of me. And there's, there's good things in life. And even Scripture, we could look at Scripture and read it and study it and know it, but we could also become prideful with that knowledge. And I started, that started to happen to me. That's why God tells us over and over again to humble ourselves. In fact, he commands it to us that we need to humble ourselves. Well, after my freshman year, I came back to Clearfield and played summer ball. And we always tried to play some, some league somewhere. So I played with my friends. We played in a men's league. And that's where the pride really became evident in my life. And I didn't confront it. You know, I started to share with my friends what I was learning, and I really thought that I was going to be the stud on the baseball field that summer and crush everybody and beat everybody and hit home runs, and, and it didn't happen. So it was, a rough, it was a rough summer. I was able to apply what I learned, which that was good, but I still didn't do real well. Well, I got back to college and fell in love with second base. The, coach, the new coach took over, and I started playing second base, and as Dave would say it's a great position. So we um, got settled there, and I played three years there with Geneva and was able to continue to improve and make some adjustments. After college was done, I came back to the area and started coaching. And as 
coaching happens, that also can afford the opportunity for pride. So I started helping out a little bit at the high school at Clearfield, and I also started coaching my nephew's teener league team. So he was 13. I helped the head coach. He pretty much let me run the team, which was great because I knew what I wanted to do. And my attitude going into that season was, okay, I played college baseball. Um, I've learned a lot. There's no reason why we shouldn't crush this league and clean it up. So my prideful attitude was evident. The ironic thing is we were 7-7 seven and seven that year. Probably had the best team, and I'm glad, we, I'm glad we didn't do anything special. I probably had the best player in the league. And every time he would come up to the plate, bases would be loaded, guys on second and third, everybody doing their job. He'd hit the ball, and I would stand coaching third base, and I'd watch this monstrous pop up to third base, third out of the inning. Time and time again it happened. Fly ball to left field. Now, those of you that have been to Clearfield to watch Little League Baseball or play over there, to hit a home run on that field is not a hard thing. Okay, The newer field, um, we actually used to play Senior League Baseball on that field. So it's actually a Little League field now. 10 or 15 feet beyond that is a Senior League fence. My mother could hit a home run on that field. So it's not that hard. In fact, one day I gave up four home runs on that field because somebody hit four fly balls that just made it over the fence. So... It does happen, but it didn't happen that year. Second year, same thing. We didn't do anything special. Third year, finally, um, a verse in Scripture that I love is Proverbs 14.23, and it says, All hard work brings a profit. Mere talk leads only to poverty. And I've shared that with some of our athletes through the years. When we work hard, God blesses us. That's his commitment to us, his promise. And I taught those guys to work hard as I tried to work with the guys at West Branch to teach them to work hard. But that third year, we finally won a championship. And we won a championship not because of me. The last game of the season, the final game, we were playing in the championship game. And we were winning most of the game. Came down to the bottom of the seventh inning. And they were the other team, was they were coming back. And they were I, we, I made some pitching changes, I think. And they were still scoring runs. I think we got the second out somehow. They, had, they might have had bases loaded, guys on second, third. I don't even remember all the details. But I remember the second out came because it was a, a ball hit back to the pitcher. The pitcher caught it, threw to first base for the second out. And one of my nephew's buddies was on third base. And he thought it was the third out. So he started walking back to the dugout. And our pitcher looked over and saw him walk into the dugout, went over and tagged him for the third out, and we won. So didn't have anything to do with me, which I'm glad. Praise God that it didn't. So as I moved into coaching high school baseball, that same pride, I was nervous, but that same pride was also there. And if you've ever been into the gym and looked at the banners, there's a lot of banners up there. And there was a banner that caught my attention. It's actually two of them, and they're district championship ba- banners for baseball. And I looked at those, and I'm thinking, you know what? I was part of s- some winning teams in high school that won district championship games, and there's no reason why my name couldn't be associated with that, and we could win a district championship. Well, as I said, if you've been involved in athletics, you know that athletics is humbling. Um, 
We never did win a district championship. Through that process, God led me to a verse in James. And I'm going to be in James, if you want to open up to James chapter 4. I'm also going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 a little bit. So we'll go back and forth between those. So if you have your Bible, want to open up to those two passages. James 4, 6, I'm reading out of the NIV. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's like somebody hit me in the face with a brick when I read that verse, and I don't even know how I came across that verse, just reading it. It was meant to be, and I read that verse, and I'm like, God is opposing me. I am prideful in my coaching, and I'm pr- I, he, I know he's opposing me. And at that point, I knew that District 6 championship would never happen. And I don't remember you know, what year that was in my coaching. However, God did bless us. We had a great time. The guys that are out here that play ball, we had a great time, and God did bless us very much. That verse in Proverbs where hard work brings the profits, there was other championships that we won, and they weren't any less. You know, for some reason, this District 6 championship, in my mind, was going to be better. I don't know why I thought that, but God was opposing that because of, because of my pride. So as we look through here today, I want to come out and share some lessons that I think come out from pride and related topics First one, that God does oppose the pride that's evident in our life. He will oppose that. And I don't know about you, I don't think I want God opposing me. I don't like that. And I would rather have the second part of this verse, but God gives grace to the humble. So does he oppose pride in both the Christian and non-Christian? I believe we have to say yes, because look how he dealt, dealt with Satan and his pride. He dealt with him harshly. And look how he dealt with the Israelites. And they, they were his people. And he dealt with them because of pride. James is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians here. And he's telling us that God opposes pride. But he gives grace to the humble. So yes, I believe the answer is yes to that. You know, when we think of sin, we could take a look at all the Ten Commandments. Pride is at the root of all of those. If we steal something, really aren't we saying, God, I can please myself here. I can solve this problem. I'm just going to take it. I don't need to trust you to give that to me and work that out. When we lie, the same thing. We're saying, God, I know how to handle this myself. It's a prideful attitude. I don't need you, God, to handle this. I know how to reword it to get out of this. Lust, adultery, again, I know how to please myself. I don't need you to take care of that, God. So I think we could say that pride is wrapped around in every sin of our lives. Well, the other thing that I, as I shared, I love the deer hunt. Now it's time to share about deer hunting. God also opposes the pride that could happen in our lives. And I thank God that he did this in my life, this area of my life. And I love to deer hunt so much that I can remember as a 12-year-old, those of you that go to deer camp, laying in bed at deer camp, and I don't think I slept a wink all night. Of course, my dad was snoring in my ear to the left, uncles across, cousins, and other, other things going on. that There was no way I was going to sleep, but I just dreamt about killing a buck. And hearing stories, you know, you'd sit downstairs, listen to all the stories, and you're like, yeah, that's going to be me. I know it. Yeah. You know, all these great stories over and over again. 
and I know that I did not sleep at all that night. So I got up that morning, and my first, it seemed like my first couple years of hunting, it rained and it was foggy and miserable, but I never did kill a deer. I missed a spike that year, but I never did kill a buck that year. Didn't kill a doe. Um, I did kill a few deer those first few years of hunting, and God blessed that, and I'm glad he did because that kept my interest. However, year after year, that same thing went on with the bucks. Didn't kill a buck. Didn't kill a buck. And I would sit in class. Everybody would be telling their deer stories. Oh, yeah, I killed a spike. I killed a six-point. And I'm just like, I am so jealous. It would make me furious that they would be killing these bucks. And I, I wasn't. I wanted to kill a buck so bad. My dad, in fact, killed a buck every year that he hunted until I started hunting. So... Is God sovereign? He's, tell, he's speaking here. He really is. But anyway, I didn't kill a buck till I was 24 years old, which I brought it today. This is the first buck I killed, 24 years old, my Pennsylvania monster buck. I call this the praise God buck. It looks like fingers, doesn't it? It looks like he's... But I call it the praise God buck, 1994, and I was in Butler County. I was working for Marriott as a manager, and my college roommate said, hey, why don't you come hunt with me? He never hunted before. He wanted the experience. He took a pistol hunting, and I'm like, first time hunting, but that was him. He had some strange things about him. However, um, we got permission to hunt on a farm right by his house, so I thought, hey, that's good. You don't get invited to hunt on somebody's farm too often, but um, once I got there, he finally said, oh, yeah, we can't hunt on the good parts of the farm. He told us one area that we're allowed to hunt. So I was like, okay. And I don't even remember that we scouted. We might have went out the night before and just looked at where we were going to go in the woods. So, you know, I, I wasn't that experienced as a hunter and really wasn't that great of a hunter. Still, I'm not a great hunter. However, that morning, dropped down over the hill. I don't even know where my college roommate went. I was I went over this area and just sat down and, I remember about 7 o'clock, I had this little pathetic little bleak or grunt call, and I was hitting that. And I looked up, and here comes this, this buck walking up the hill. I'm like, ooh. You understand this. I haven't seen a buck since I was 12 to shoot at. So my heart was pounding. So that buck came up the hill, and it was like it was coming up the hill to look to listen for that grunt call, and it turned around and started walking away, and that's when I knew I pulled the gun up and shot it, and it dropped. So, you know, I was ecstatic, went down, took care of it, drug it up. My college roommate was mad at me. He goes, why didn't you tell me? I wanted to help you gut this and drag it. He wanted the whole experience. So I I blew that. Sorry, Pete, wherever you are. Um, I came home. I was excited, very excited. And I wanted to tell my family about my deer kill. So I knew my dad was out hunting. And you've got to understand, my dad had cancer. And my brother-in-law, which my sister Lisa, my brother-in-law Ron had him out and hunting. And he had my uncle with them and on their property and got him set up in some easy locations. And I went to call home and I expected my mom to answer the phone. And my dad answered the phone. And I said, Dad, what are you doing home? And he said, I shot a buck this morning. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And he was excited because he goes, I never thought I could do it. And he was shaking from cancer. 
And just he really didn't even think he was going to be able to get out in the woods. So he was really excited. He shot a four-point. And he said, did you shoot one? And I said, yes. He said, I got my first buck. And uh, so we talked a little bit. And after a little bit, I said, Dad, what time did you shoot that buck? And he said, 7.20 a.m. And guess what time that I shot that buck? 7.20 a.m. He was in Clearfield County. I was in Butler County. We shot that buck at the exact same time. And that was my dad's last buck. My first buck. So when I look at hunting and I look at the sovereignty of God, that God cares about every little detail of our life. And as I look back on that, it was like God was telling me, Dave, I loved what you and your dad had. You had special moments. And we would go to camp all the time. That was my favorite place to go with my dad. Sometimes just he and I just to go hang out. But we had something special. And God was like saying, I love you. I love what you had. Okay, it was great. And I was behind it all. As I look back, I'm glad that I didn't kill any bucks before then because of God's sovereignty. And I know that I would have been prideful. Had I killed a buck all through those years, I know it would have afforded the opportunity for me to be prideful over that. I've killed other deer since then, some really nice ones, but I'll tell you, it's not because I'm a good hunter. There's some bad shots that I should have never happened, but they did. <laughs> so I praise God for those also, and I'm glad that they happen, happen that way. So I'm not prideful. You know, James 4, 6 says that he gives grace to the humble, so he tells us to humble ourselves. We are supposed to humble. But how do we do that? How do we become humble? Unfortunately, I think there's times where God's going to humble us anyway because we're stubborn. We have hard hearts, and he has to. However, there's times where I think we are challenged. We can see evidences in other people's lives. So we need to look around. We need to look at the mistakes that other people make. We need to look in Scripture and look at the mistakes and even the successes that happen here and compare ourselves and look at that and learn from it. You know, when we get into God's Word, we even mentioned this in Sunday school this morning, we get in God's Word and we compare ourselves to a holy God and to all that He's doing, we realize that we're nothing. We are nothing. And the more we learn and the more we study we are a sinful people who need a holy God, that we need the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's humbling in itself. And the more we go through life and study that, I would say that's where we need to start. It's got to be God's Word, and I encourage all of us to get into God's Word. I want to talk a little bit more about humility, though. I think lesson three is, I have it titled here, How About Humility? And I want to look at the story of Hannah. And that's where, keep your place in James, as we are going to come back there. But I want to look at Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Real quickly, we're not going to spend a ton of time there. Some of you might be thinking, all right, Larish, we're here, we're here talking about baseball, hunting, guts, and glory, and now you're going to talk about a female. Come on. What is and babies. But I'll tell you, the women are probably sitting here telling us that the toughest thing in life is to have a child. So suck it up, Larish, and suck it up, guys. What you went and talked about last night was nothing compared to having a child. We're having a kidney stone. 
Those of you that experienced that lovely. Anyway, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 7 here to set the stage. There was a certain man from Ramathium, and I apologize for my pronunciations, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And I am so glad that we don't have students in class with these names. Thank you. Thank you, parents. Some of them are hard enough. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, so she had many. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord closed her womb. He beca- and, be- and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. You know, we talk about bullying in school. Here's an example of bullying here. Her rival kept provoking Here's Hannah having a trial. She wanted a child, something bad, year after year, going up to worship and praise the Lord, praying for a child. She was childless. This was tearing her apart. Yet, on top of all that, her rival kept provoking her. You can imagine what she was saying to her, making fun of her. Why don't you you have a child? Look at all my children. In order to do what? What does it say there? Irritate her. Nothing but to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she could not eat. So here we are, the story of Hannah. And if you would continue to read down through this, you don't read about pride here. So you might say, why are we talking about this? Why is Hannah here? Well, when God gives us difficulties in life, it doesn't mean that it's to deal with our pride. It could. But trials aren't there necessarily to deal with that specific issue. However, I believe that Hannah, going through this struggle, certainly learned about pride and humility, didn't she? Would you agree with me? Going through this struggle, her hurt and her pain, she could realize what those things are all about. You know, we find out later, as you know, the rest of the story, she did have her child. She had Samuel and dedicated Samuel back to the Lord. In chapter 2, we see Hannah's praise, and she's singing to God and praising God for all that he has done. And you know what? Hannah was a humble person. Think back to James where it says that God gives grace to the humble. You know, when God gives us grace... He does it in a mighty way. You think about Hannah. Think about that. You know, this, this buck that I have here, I think God also didn't let me have success to show me something powerful about himself. And here I am today being able to share that story, a story about him, about giving glory to him. And he does these things in our life, even though we don't like them, all for his glory. But he also teaches us about 
humility and pride. Whenever we go through these trials in life, God tells us to search our hearts and he allows us to search our hearts to see what we need to address. Maybe praying and asking, God, what do you need me to learn through all this? Even in the absence of pride, we need to contemplate these things. Another issue with pride, I think, with me is family pride. And although I don't think outwardly I would go around and brag about my family, but inwardly I really believe I was a prideful family person and thinking that I had it all together as a family man and as a dad. And you know, even growing up in a great home, you know, I'm really thankful for parents and I you know, there could be pride that could be involved in that, but you know, you 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 all know of my struggle in the in the trial that has been given to my family the last seven months. And I've learned humility through this. Whether God was directly dealing with my pride or not, I don't know, but just like Hannah, either way I can still learn about or humility through all this. Because I really thought that I was doing a pretty good job as a dad. However, this death of my son has left some emptiness and sadness. And as I think of what Paul said in Corinthians about that he gave me a thorn in the flesh, I really think some of my emptiness and some of my sadness is God's way of giving me a thorn in the flesh to protect me against pride because I do need it. You know, other applications, you know, it just doesn't have to be on a personal level. How about a church? Can churches become prideful? Can churches start prideful? I think the answer is all those. And, and we look at First, Second Corinthians. The whole way through that, Paul is dealing with a difficult church. They had lawsuits among Christians. They were suing one another in a church. Imagine coming to church Sunday morning here and you don't know who might be wanting to sue you. You backed into their car in the parking lot and damaged their car. Now they want to sue you. They argued over trivial matters like who to follow, Paul, Apollos, Peter. That would be like us coming in here to argue about should we listen to David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll. You know, we're, who should we follow? Who should we listen to? They had allowed an adulterous relationship to go on. Paul had to address that. They treated people differently at meals. They created stumbling blocks for weaker Christians. You know, there was issues with food sacrifice to idols, and people that were comfortable with that and believed that it was nothing would eat that food, and the younger, weaker Christians were seeing that, and they were like, why are they eating food sacrifice to idols? And they were struggling with that. That's becoming a stumbling block for a younger, younger Christian. They had prideful outlooks on spiritual gifts, and some they thought were lesser than others. So there was pride involved there. And Paul tells them in chapter 11, he says that we need to judge ourselves, inwardly looking, evaluate ourselves in humility. We need to humble ourselves. So again, we're seeing this word humility, humbling ourselves. Pride can do a whole host of, or cause a whole host of problems within a group of people, a church, a team, a classroom, dormitory where students are living, 
It could be anywhere. So when we go back to James, James 4 in verses 7 through 10, James continues here. In verse 7 he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. Isn't the devil behind pride? We need to resist this. Submit yourselves, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will do what? He will lift you up. Do you want to be lifted up this morning? Do you want to be lifted up in your life? And humility. We need to look at humility. You know, pride can keep us from asking for help. And I believe that with my son Jeremy, whatever he was dealing with, I know he was full of shame and guilt. But I can't help but think that there might have been some pride there because he didn't ask for help. He was struggling and swimming in something, and he didn't say, Dad, I'm struggling with something. Pastor, I'm struggling with something. Grandma, aunt, whoever. He had so many people in his corner. You guys have so many people in your corner. And Pastor Matt shared that with me in an email. I'm in your corner, Dave. And you guys have been in my corner, and I appreciate it so much. I need you guys. You guys need each other. And you know what? We struggle. We still have that sin nature in there, and you need each other to share your hurts. Sometimes we need to confess our sin to one another. And that doesn't mean you go share your dirty laundry with everybody in this building. But you know what? There's probably somebody in here that could help you and help work through this. One of the worst things with pride, and I'm going to finish with this, as you know, is rejecting Christ altogether. Ultimately, we say when we don't want Jesus... God, again, I can do it myself. I can save myself. As we talked in Sunday school and as many of you studied this morning, I can earn my way there. I can do it myself. That is pride at the utmost. That I have the way to get there. I don't need God's plan. I don't need Jesus Christ. So if there's somebody here this morning that does not know Jesus, ultimately, that's your choice. You're rejecting the Son of God in a prideful, arrogant attitude. In Luke chapter 6, the story about the wise and foolish builder, the foolish man built his house on the sand. He built his home without Jesus Christ. And the back part of that verse says that that house was destroyed. It was eliminated. It was done with. And unfortunately, if we go without choosing Jesus Christ, that's us. We're going to be destroyed, just like that home. And it might have been a beautiful home. could have been a mansion, something you would say, I can't believe that person lived that kind of life and was that good of a person. However, it doesn't matter. Without Jesus Christ and without being built on the foundation of Christ, we are saying, I don't need God. I don't want his ways. I don't want his teaching. Ultimately, I don't want Christ. So today we're faced 
several questions. Number one, if we don't know Christ as our Savior, will we choose him? Number two, daily, will we humble ourselves? Because I think it is a battle to daily do that. Satan is right there tempting us with all kinds of sin. And again, pride is behind all of that. He's right there, but we need to get to our knees and in God's word and humble ourselves and allow God to work in our lives. Because you know what? When he blesses us, he does it good. And that's what he wants to do with all of us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to be his children. Even in hardship, he's going to bless us. And he has been. And as your prayers, your prayers are not going without being heard because God is doing marvelous things both at West Branch School and in the lives of my family and the lives of friends. And my son's death is not going without God's working. And I pray that you keep praying for that and praying for me because it is a daily struggle. I hurt every day. I do. I really hurt. And, you know, listening to people say, Dave, we're praying for you. Two guys at that dinner last night said they've been praying for me and the one guy I worked a little bit around, the other guy I knew years ago, and I'm just like, it's amazing to know that people are praying. But it's not going to happen without prayer. And I know pastor needs your prayer. You should be praying for him in this pulpit every time he's here, when he's sharing God's word, that it's powerful because it affects all of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you very much for the chance to be here this morning, and thank you, God, for loving us. We thank you for the joys and the victories. God, we thank you for the trials because you're behind them too. And as Job said, should I accept all good and not bad in our life? God, you use it both, the good and the bad. You love us through it all. It's your plan. We are here to praise you, God, because of your plan and your will and your purpose. God, you are working as we saw in Mexico. You're working in the United States. You're working here in Clearfield County. And we praise you, God, and we ask you to continue to work and thwart Satan's plan and his schemes in our lives. And I pray that you would reveal those, God. Reveal them. Bring them forth. May may we know what our kids are doing. Reveal it. Lord, I just pray that you would bless us as we continue this service and work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.